right. Uh, welcome to Calling Shots. If you're listening listening live or, or catching it later, I'm Seth Partnow. Uh, apologies for yesterday's episode. I, I know my guest Brian uh, Schroeder, his his audio was a little quiet. Uh, the folks at Colin are working on that to see if they can they can balance that out a little bit better. And if it doesn't work out, we'll have him back on. He'll tell us more about uh, this year's draft class. But today, I'm joined by a friend of the program, friend of mine, um, someone who I've been following in the basketball space for. I, geez, when when did you start appearing on 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 ESPN shows, Coach? Uh, Fifteen years ago. Uh, yeah, two thousand. My first year at ESPN was two thousand seven. So just about 15 years. So uh, joined by uh, Coach David Thorpe. Uh, Coach, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Seth. How are you, my friend? I'm doing all right. I am, uh, you know, it's, it is the first, officially the first day of spring here in Milwaukee, it seems like. So, <laughs> so that the mood is brighter since it's in the 60s, which, you know, is, 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 is uh, parka weather down where you are. But it's, uh, it's cause for celebration up here. Listen, you guys love to say that, but I, I have a whole bunch of friends from up north, and when they come in town, and I put them, I pick them up at the airport, and they come to my house with the air conditioning on, they're freezing all the time. So uh, they need jackets in my car when I set the AC at, you know, 67. Uh, we would love 60s down here. We're, we're 70s today, and we're lucky. It's mostly been 80s the last two weeks, the air conditioning on, and we're Trust me when I tell you, we, we prefer some cooler weather sometimes, which we do get on occasion. Unfortunately, it seems like that was more 10 years ago than it is lately. It's been warm most winters here. For sure. So, um, generally when we talk, we kind of bounce all over the place. And I wanted to start today with something I saw you talking about yesterday on, on Twitter. And this sort of, like, ties into right now in the NBA, we are seeing a lot of offense. And... You were noting that, you know, uh, of course, Kyrie Irving scoring 60 is impressive because getting 60 in an NBA game is, that's a lot of points. But you were noting that um, we'd probably see more explosions like that if players were only playing one or two games a week. Um, and I thought that was an interesting place to start. So I wanted to, you know, get into that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, I, I will tell you that in my office, I have four TVs and, um, Watch to watch games. I, I really don't, I don't really watch anything else except for games at night. And I also have my son, who is a basketball player at Florida State, and two of his teammates in town. And so it's fair to say my attention wasn't totally locked in on Kyrie uh, scoring all those points. I didn't realize he had 40-plus in the first half. All I knew was I had a bunch of games on, everything's muted, and I saw one dude playing on fast forward and everyone else playing in slow motion. And I thought, well, you know, that's what happens when you don't get overplayed over the course of a four-and-a-half-at-this-point season. If everyone was as healthy as, as Kyrie, we, our games would be much faster. They can't all score like Kyrie. Obviously, he's an incredible talent, really a super special-skilled guy. But when Kyrie came out of college, set, no one thought he was this elite athlete. But right now, he's running circles around people partially because of his skill, and, of course, you still have to make the shot, which is not easy to do for most little guys, and he was great at that yesterday. Uh, but, yeah, we, we've been saying it true for a long, true for a long time now that if uh, forget about ratings and all these other things where there's just not so many games all the time. If we wanted to care more about our athletes' bodies, not just not just physically but mentally also, and just have more excitement in games because everyone would be healthier and fresher, we would. I, I've always contended for a 72-game schedule 
Uh, and then also a strong suggestion to teams to limit minutes. Just, you know, you, I don't think you can police it, just like you can't police pitches in baseball, but you can make a strong argument uh, to, to play more guys, play younger guys, give guys a chance to develop and, and make mistakes during the season, but also to save our best players. Just like didn't Doc Rivers just announced now he's going to play Embiid and Harden less until the playoffs? Didn't that just happen yesterday? I was it was earlier this week, yeah. I think and okay. and some people took that as as sort of a um, certainly after the last time the Sixers played Brooklyn that uh, that maybe they're trying to duck the Nets in the playoffs, which um, isn't from, from a standpoint of trying to progress far in the playoffs doesn't actually seem like the worst strategy. I mean, I think that's right. you earn a, you you earn a top seed here. Here's Kevin Durant. Doesn't seem <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it's, it's like thanks. Um, but I, but it, but it, that's how it was interpreted. But I think it was as much like what you're saying is all right. Yeah, we could we could dig out an extra win or two in March, but that's not that's not where we're ultimately going to be judged on this season. So right. yeah, give a guy a day off or here or there. Um, it only kind yeah, of makes I, sense. Yeah, Seth Henry Henry Abbott, you know, my partner, the founder yeah. of True Hoop, has written a lot about this. There, there's lots of experts in sports like marathon running where it's, it's a scientific fact that your body can only do, you know, two really hard uh, workouts, I don't know if it's every five days or every week or every 10 days, whatever the math is. Um, and, uh, and then you start risking things like injury. I, I, an example I'll give you is years, uh, a few years, maybe five years ago, my wife and I had a chance to invest in a minority stake of a, a Premier League soccer team. We, we were not taking the kind of stake that people like LeBron James take, but we were part of a group that did, and our team wasn't Chelsea or some of these big teams. It was a, a, a smaller club uh, in, in the Premier League. And, uh, but I was able to go spend two weeks with them in Wales, which is where they're based, and also spend a week with them in North Carolina for a training camp. Uh, they came here to train before the season started. And, I mean, our players are everything. Everyone's got heart monitors and sweat monitors and everything and there's a tent set up. We were in North Carolina. And we were in Cary, North Carolina, so a little suburb of uh, the Raleigh-Durham area. And, um, and there's a big tent because it's really sunny. Well, I don't really need a tent. I'm used to the sun, obviously, being a Floridian. But all these British dudes were huddled under that tent and lots of computers. And it was just basically doctors and scientists studying everything you could possibly study of these players while they were training. And I made a comment uh, because the head coach – was at the time with NBA fans. So I had said to him one day, like, after practice, why don't they stay and, and work on just shooting just like we would in the NBA or really at any level of basketball? And the answer basically is, especially that time of year and with the heat and humidity of North Carolina, uh, once they hit that red line, which is being monitored by all these doctors, they can't do anything else. They are shut down and i understand it i get it and yet i'm telling you our athletes as somebody who deals with nba athletes all the time they're really hitting that red line all the time Seth, and they're still being asked to play or even starting games red line and that's where injuries come about uh, uh more commonly than they would otherwise so we're getting lesser players who are who are less healthy less capable of doing incredibly dynamic things we're increasing the risk of injury and how many I mean, you've been following the NBA a long time. How many playoffs have we had where 
we've had even 90% of the best players healthy throughout the postseason. I would argue it's been a long time. That's, that's a fair point. I mean, it's, it's you know, the, the, the sort of asterisks on a series win or a title win is something that comes up all the time. And the, the easiest yeah. retort is like, hey, every year the champion gets lucky, it, even if right. only because their guys don't get injured. Because every right. year we do see this. <laughs> You know, you go back and, you know, you look at that, like this, like this obviously came up most recently from Anthony Davis. And it's just like, so, okay, you got hurt in last year's playoff, but you're going to just ignore uh, Goran Dragic and Bam Adebayo either missing right. or being ineffective <laughs> exactly. for most of that series. Like that, that doesn't count as good luck in your favor. Oh no, we would have won that anyway. It's like, you, it, 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 okay, right. fine. So, like, uh, but, right. so he, here's the argument though, Seth, it, to me, and this is where you're probably more of a – did you play high school basketball, Seth? I did. That's what I thought. Yeah. So you're probably I'm, – I'm significantly older than you. But, um, you know, I was in high school when Larry Bird played Magic in the 79 um, championship game. And I was in high school when Lorenzo Charles got the dunk uh, to beat uh, you know, the amazing Houston team. And so, of course, basketball has, has grabbed me. I, Jerry West was my favorite player – you know, when I was in elementary school, even though I didn't really watch much basketball because my dad loved him. So I, I would, I guess you would call me an old school purist. And we are faced with the reality that, that the NFL and college football are just so much more popular than our best. The, we have the best league in the world. I trade players, as you know, from all over the world. And our league here is the best. And yet we're losing in popularity. Uh, I, my, my son is a very serious player, obviously, but to sit down and watch a game for two and a half hours when you can just watch a 10-minute version of YouTube later, it, it, it's hard to get them to want to do that. And so I, I get that we need to think about that aspect. So how do we get our league more popular so more people will watch it so we continue to pay these guys lots of money? It's, anyone who's the best in the world at something deserves a lot of money, and I want them to get that. And so one of the things we have to consider, I think, is, popularity and, and how is it as a product on television? How is it a product on social media? These are all things that matter. And so if we can get more games to mean more because so much is riding on it, like I don't watch the NFL, but I just know with few games, I don't watch college football either, but there's just not a lot of games. So the games carry more meaning and the players are less beat up than our players, although their sport is so violent, obviously. I, I just think we'd have more Kyrie. Kyrie had 40-plus in the first half. But if, even if he scored 20, the way he was scoring was, was just so, you know, beautiful to look at. And so we had more guys to do that because they were healthier. We Maybe, I'm not saying we, I know for sure, but I think maybe we would have a more compelling product, um, which would just increase the ratings, get people more excited. And I know this, the more all-stars we have in the postseason, the better our ratings will be, that's for sure. No, that's right. Um, is it interesting? I mean, you're, you're you're talking about the difference, you know, with the, with how like a, a soccer team dealt dealt with this. Um, yeah. By and large, like U.S. sports are are much further ahead than than kind of sports and other like non North American sports in terms of like the on field or on court use of analytics and that you know by like okay, what's the value of this player based on their production that kind of stuff. Um, that flips pretty quickly when we start to get into like the sports science stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot of it has come out of Australia and it's been just very strongly adopted in like, as you say, um, soccer clubs and rugby clubs, like all over the world 
in a way that really, um, maybe baseball teams are kind of starting to do this, but like NBA teams, like we do, we monitor and stuff like that. But there's, but the idea that like, nope, you're done, sit down, no more shooting. Like that just sounds crazy. Like it's yeah. even though you know it's right, it's just like that. You know, just the the sort of, um, you know, for a lot of players, it's true. I mean, these guys have incredible work ethics to become this good. But sort of the there's there's also the the downside of that, which is like the Instagram rise and grind thing. Like, no, you can't tell me that. How am I gonna <laughs> how am I gonna get, gonna post my workout video if I don't get my extra twenty minutes of you know of of crazy looking drill or something like that. <laughs> Well, you're preaching to the choir on that. Uh, I've often been criticized. As someone who supposedly kind of invented the player development as a business model, uh, every coach, as far as my life, you know, I'm 57 now, I've never had a coach not try to help me play better, but it was always my coach. In the early 90s, I started helping other players, coaches, who realized maybe I'm better than, that, than them at that aspect, and they can kind of focus on the team stuff. So I've been doing this since 93, I think it was, my first year, initially with high school players, and obviously now you know, pretty much NBA and, and, and pros in Europe or whatever. Um, I happen to think that there's, there's a fine line. Actually, it's not that fine a line. Um, I, I am not someone that will try to tell my players to take a 1,000 threes a month or a week or whatever it is. I don't do that. Uh, I'm, I'm much more focused on quality because I know that if they shoot too much and they get fatigued, whether it's their arm or their shoulder or their legs, well, then you start, you start trying to make up for it with something else and you develop some kind of mechanical change in your shot. Well, now I have to fix it. And I'm thinking from experience here, uh, I might lead the world in rebounding. I always say this, not just because I've coached for so long, and rebounded lots of my player shots, although I do have typically interns, whatever that do for at my age, but I have a son who, and we have a yard, we have a basket in our front yard and, and he lived out there, which is why he was able to play in the ACC the last two years. Um, I rebound a lot of his shots. And if he went out on a weekend where I was out of town or whatever, and he got too many shots up, something had to be fixed. So, and he gets it like there, there is, there's a time, just like I told you with those soccer players, there's a time just to stop. Not that you're going to hurt yourself shooting. You won't. But you're going to, you're going to cause some other kind of problem. Uh, and so I, I, and the, I, rise and grind is great, but I'd much rather go shorter. Rip Hamilton. You remember Rip Hamilton out from yeah. Detroit? Anyone listening to you probably remember Rip Hamilton. He had a great quote where he said, I, my workouts are 48 minutes because that's how long a game is. And I would tell you that uh, after stretching and before just extra shooting where a lot of times I let my players in the summer just kind of get up, you know, they just want to get some shots up on their own without my voice in their ear. I think that's great. But my workouts are about on average 45 to 50 minutes. They're incredibly fast. They're very intense, which is what a game is like. Uh, I do give them a couple of water breaks here and there. they can get water anytime they want to. They're grown men, but we try to get, we're trying to get a pace going that can somewhat simulate what they see in a game. When I see people talking about two and a half hour workouts, I just laugh. I'm, I'm coaching as fit an athlete as you could possibly um, create in the NBA, and they can't go 50 plus minutes before they're dead. And so if you're going two and a half hours, you're just jogging, which is fine. I mean, sure, plenty of people have jogged around and done really well. To me, it just isn't really uh, a great lens to, to, 
think about how you should be training when the game is played with lots of speed and then some slow stuff and then some speed. That's how most sports are. Hurry up, go slow, hurry up, go slow. That's really what, what we're trying to do. And you can't race if you have no energy left. And so why would we keep pushing when they're dead? No, that's right. And that's, that's, that was one of the eye-opening things when I first you know, got to work for the Bucks was going to draft workouts. And you say, okay, we're getting, we, we're getting them in the gym. We want to see them do this and that and all these other things. And like the, the real, like after the warm-up and before kind of like the, the end of the thing shooting drill, like the actual like, like bust-ass portion of the workout is like yeah. 40 minutes. Yeah. And right. these are and these are like super well-trained, peaking <laughs> athletes trying to make sure they perform as good as possible at the combine. And almost to a man, they're dead after 40 minutes. Because, yeah. I mean, there's like, obviously, you know, that's a combination of a workout and a job interview. So right. from a mental stress standpoint, I have to imagine right. it's, it's, it's pretty high as well. But it's just like performing at that level of competitiveness continuously, like you only got so much. And, you know, like, like you say, you can go past that. But all, at what point are you not just diminishing returns, but negative returns? Right. In, injuries are devastating in, in the, for these athletes. And, well, not just, uh, and not so, just injuries, but like, as you say, if you're, you know, there's some times where it's where you go slower to like fix something mechanical or something like that. Right, right. But if you're just like, you know, there's, that's, this is why every center in the NBA can hit like 45% or better at like, you know, spot shot threes in practice. Right but they don't have a prayer of doing that anything resembling game speed because if you have three seconds to set your feet and load up and if you're just, a, if you're on the court yeah. as much as these guys are, you're going to, you're going to be able to make that shot plenty, but that's not the same well, thing you, as, as being able to shoot. That's right. Game. And you just, you just explain why I don't do spot shooting in my gym. The only time we do spot shooting is if I'm getting guys ready for some kind of draft prep, which I really try not to do anymore. It's, I've been doing it for 20 plus years, and it's, it's like teaching the same grad school class every year. I'm bored with it, and I just think there's better guys than me now because they're excited. I just have done it for too damn long. I'm old and jaded, but um, <laughs> we'll do it because teams do it. I don't know why teams do it. I would never. I it, 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 had had the Lakers done spot shoot to Kobe Bryant. I don't think they would have drafted him. They drafted him according to what Jerry West is because he crushed in workouts as a teenager. Like that's the game. So everything we do is is as close to game simulated. So here's an example. So let's say, let's take that big guy. Here's what we would do uh, in the in intense portion of a workout. We would, we would have him score maybe five different times off some kind of action that if he's on a team, forget about draft prep, he's on a team, whether it's, you know, uh, go get the ball, play a little get game action, get it, hand it off, go screen away, shape up shot. Uh, if you miss it, go follow it up, put it in. Then race and go block a shot. Would basically just ask him to race to the other side of the court and you know touch the top of the backboard or something. Then come back down and then we maybe we'll do a, a drag screen roll dunk, race back, block a shot. We would do that maybe five times. They have to score five different ways and then we shoot two free throws and then we do something else of a similar vein for a bit. That would be and sometimes we make them pick up full court instead of instead of going to block a shot at the rim. Uh, I want I want our big guys to be able to move. So we would say okay, it's late in the game. And you just happen to be guarding the other team's ball handler. Maybe you're, I mean, in the NBA, hello, Nikola Jokic plays point guard. Al Horford plays point guard. These guys bring the ball up. And you're down three with a minute to play. You need to pressure them a little bit. 
So let's score and turn around and zigzag your guy. Imaginary, typically. I don't even like competition because I'm so worried about injury. So we'll do that. And then and sometimes if I want to work on shooting, the offensive play will always be a shot. But it, what it's not going to be is just stand, shoot, stand, shoot, stand, shoot, until we get to the teaching portion. So in a teaching portion of a workout, that's when I, I want to spot. I'll always make a move, and I really try to get them to change ranges, Seth. So uh, if you shoot a three, shoot a deeper three, or maybe shoot a, a, a shot take one drill pull-up. Uh, because it's, these guys are so good that if you just let them shoot the same range all the time, they don't miss. But, you know, two shots in ten. That's about it. So you got to challenge them a little bit. And most of these guys want to be challenged anyway. Uh, but, yeah, if we're not doing the teaching portion and we're trying to get more of the cardio, get your reps in, that's what a workout would look like typically for a big guy. So a lot I want to go with. The first is I want to you you've 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 given me bad flashbacks just mentioning the mentioning the term zigzag, which is the <laughs> the worst. That was my, it, it, the, um, I still have I, I kind of occasionally have nightmares of of my college coach blowing a whistle and going partner ball zigzags like no yeah me too <laughs> no, me too it's, it's, I did that I, I, th- I did that I too. thought that was over I thought I was done with that um yeah. and I am because uh, I don't have to do that anymore but still it's 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 the memory is so strong um yeah. so the, I had uh, I had Ben Lindbergh on a couple of weeks ago and he's he's a yeah. baseball writer who's who wrote I think one of the the better things I've read on like player development was the MVP machine from a couple Great, of years greatest, ago. greatest player development book I wrote a book called basketball jazz but I preferred his book. I, I wasn't just focused on player development, but I thought that was the single best book I've ever read on the subject. You're exactly right. I'm jealous that you know him. I really want to be his best friend. <laughs> well, so my question to his was, is, is it seems like in baseball that like a lot of the, 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 the sort of scientific improvement of player development, if you will, has come in pitching where it's a lot of like rote physical uh, like mechanics and stuff like that and hitting, which has much more of kind of a cognitive and decision-making element uh, and a perception element hasn't quite kept up with that. Um, and they're, they're sort of getting, it. and, and so, uh, that, that's been one of my big questions is, is, um, it seems like, uh, you know, if, if, if pitching a baseball is 95% mechanics, 5% co- uh, like cognition and perception, it seems like training to play basketball is almost the other way you know it's like maybe not 95 5 in terms of cognition versus physical mechanics but it's very strongly like decision making and so mike that's a long-winded way of saying how do you train that how do you how do you, can you identify who's going to be able to learn to do that or is it something everyone can get better at or just that's it's a whole topic that is fascinating to me and i don't I don't really think anyone's really cracked it because, you know, player development is very nebulous. And again, it's a lot of like there's the skills training, which is useful. Like you can get a tighter handle by, you know, doing a lot of different drills. But like, how do you pick which tools in the toolbox to use in a game situation? Sure. You've just hit the honeypot for me, my man. Um, Yeah, this is everything to me, which is why I love Ben's book so much. Uh, I mean, I'm genuinely telling you that I thought it was the best thing I ever read. Um, so a couple of things. First of all, uh, as it turns out, my soon-to-be 21-year-old son, who's now six foot three, you know, 180-something and looks incredible, used to be this tiny little kid. But because of where we live in Clearwater, Florida, and because I didn't even let him play basketball until he was basically 
He had one kind of a rec ball season at 10, and then didn't play until he was 12. He played baseball. He played 11 seasons of baseball in five, six years. Because we go, you know, twice a year down here. We play. Because you don't play year-round here. Um, and he played high-level travel baseball where, like, he's got teammates playing college baseball right now. And my son feels like he, he could be at least AAA level um, as a pro. That he was kind of trending in that direction. I, this is what he says. I'm not telling you I agree or disagree. But he was a very, 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 very good baseball player. And at a, at a size where he was tiny playing up against much older players because of two things. Uh, I coached in high school in the 80s and an elite baseball player. He was great at basketball, too. They ended up specializing in baseball and was an All-American in baseball and a professional baseball player uh, with the Tigers system. And he worked with me because I can teach anything if I understand it. I'm a professional teacher. That's really what I do. Um, he taught me how to throw. I played baseball, too, growing up. But he taught me really how to throw the ball the right way, which is you know, your, your arm is reaching, for most players anyway, if you think of a clock, like almost at 12 o'clock, straight up and then straight down to 6 o'clock, getting that angle. Because in, in hitting, you really need to match your swing plane to the pitch plane if you want to drive the ball. Remember, and I'm not going to bore your basketball fans with too much baseball, but basically for many years, and again, I played pretty ser seriously when I was young, we used to teach to chop the ball down to hit ground balls. That's, you know, that's old school stuff. That's almost like, in basketball, just use your right hand is all you need, like Bob Cousy. Uh, that's not the smartest way to play baseball. So it's hard it's to match the mid-range jumper of it's the mid-range jumper yeah, of, right, of baseball. Right, true. <laughs> well, we definitely teach a lot of mid-range where, where I live. So we teach everything. So Max had incredible teaching as to how to pitch the ball, uh, and even though he was smaller than guys, it's the pitch plane is the pitch plane. And and then we have these incredible hitting academies here. Well, one of them is run. Remember, you know, Major League Baseball players don't leave Florida if they can help in the winter because of our tax system here, which is which is to say we don't have any. So you have lots of these incredible hitting academies where you'll just have a major leaguer walk in. We also have spring training here, as you know, all over the place. The Phillies facility is 12 minutes away from where I live on one a run road away from me. Um, you just walk, you see them all the time. And so my son got incredible teaching, and baseball is so far ahead and Ben's book showed to me it's so far ahead of basketball in my opinion and so on the pitching side where everything is so metered out mechanically uh, I would argue hitting is, is closer to that than I think people realize but the difference in my opinion Seth is it's really a game of one-on-one -on -one in so many cases in baseball there, there's nothing the shortstop can do uh, if, uh, if the batter knocks the ball over the fence or hits it to the outfield. It's pitcher versus hitter. The catcher's involved, of course, catching the ball and calling the, the pitches. But our game really is jazz, which is why I named my book Basketball Jazz. We're so interconnected. We can help. The Magic chose not to help last night very often. Kyrie was waltzing to the rim all over the place or shooting threes off a handoff where – Somehow they felt like, well, he probably can't make that shot. Well, yeah, he can, and always has been able to, at least for years. Uh, so, we, so we're much more interconnected. That's why I think uh, where, where I feel like our game has failed, and, and this is on me, uh, if I could wave a magic wand, Seth, and go back in time, 
I would have franchised my business, but I never would have called it skill development. It's game development. I totally agree with your comment. Yes, you can work on your handle and you work on your left foot finishes and your right foot, right hand, left foot, left hand, and scoops and floaters. And you know, there's no shortage of skills of which Kyrie's mastered pretty much all of them. Yeah, doing all those things matters. But how many players have you seen that have all sorts of skill but can't play a lick? Hello, Jalen Green from the Rockets, for example. He might learn how to play. In fact, it's fair to say he probably will learn how to play. But I think it's harder to teach guys how to play than it is any one particular skill or all the skills. Uh, it's how to use those skills, just what you said. How, how and when and where. Those things matter. So that, I've always done the game. I didn't call it skill development. Nobody did. There was no one doing this. It was helping guys play better basketball. I don't care how we do it. I, there are players that were really limited that I coached that got to college because I helped them maximize that which they could do well and minimize that which they couldn't. I, a guy playing it, like I had a player signed with the Gators, started as a freshman. There was lots he couldn't do, but what he could do, he was elite at it, which is why he got a scholarship and started for a Florida team. Like, you know, a year after, two years after they went to the Final Four in 94, he was in that freshman class. So they were recruiting great players. Um, and people thought he couldn't even play Division Three, but he ended up being elite at like things like shooting and not getting screened. You know, the guys that, you know, some guys you just can't screen. They find a way to get around every screen. What a talent that would be, especially now, where you have people like Kyrie that all these guys don't want to shoot off the dribble when you go under a screen uh, or just trail behind it even. So these are the things that people like me have to be working on. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and so, like, and, and so, but my question is, and this is this is almost more of a, it's a, it's a, it's a teaching thing, like more than like, I don't think like there's, there's probably, there's not a hard and fast line between teaching and coaching, but this is almost more, you know, okay, we can talk about how you physically make someone better, like the, the mechanics of, of, you know, starting strength, weightlifting or something like that. But this is much more about like, like, like teaching than it is. It's, it's, uh, it's right. like responding correctly to, to, to situations. And I, I, how, like, I mean, reps is, I guess, the way to do it, but you're sort of balancing that against, like, what you're talking about earlier, like, you wanting to, like, limit, like, getting the maximum mental reps without, like, wearing out the physical reps. Like, well, uh, but I would add one more thing, and this is probably the most important wrinkle. Reps without instruction or guidance is just a recipe for building a habit that you may not want. And so, you, so while I have an assistant coach, for example, for many years, named Ryan Pannone. Ryan is now the head coach of the Birmingham Squadron for the Pelicans franchise. I, I actually think he should be a head NBA coach uh, this coming season. He, he would be one of the youngest. He's you know maybe 36. But for one of these teams like the Pistons, I'm not saying I'm not saying fire my friend Dwayne Casey, but should they decide to bring in a younger guy, focus on player development, I think Pannone would be the best guy in the world at it. He spent 14 or so years in my gym. But when he first started, he wanted, to, he wanted to correct the guys every time they did something wrong because he saw me correcting the players. Like if they didn't hold their follow-through or their balance wasn't greater, you know, there's these thousands of different things that, that we look at every day in evaluating our, 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 our drills. And then I had, a, I had a player, a very high-level player, come up to me and say, you got to talk to Ryan 
he, sometimes he needs to let us just figure it out for ourselves. We know we're doing it wrong. You, we've heard you before. You don't do this, Coach, when you coach us, but he doesn't know any better. He's 24, and he thinks he has to correct us every time. And, and of course, I did. And, and like I said, I think he's, he's probably the best in the world for player development coaching and bench coaching. I think he's probably the best hybrid we have in the world today, and, although there's a few other great ones. Um, uh, and so there, that's the art. And this is why I think there's a major problem with too, much, too many reps. I do think rep work is everything. Uh, in terms of developing a skill for the game. You just can't overdo it with number of reps, and you can't let them do it without any kind of feedback because they'll just groove something wrong. Even if it's working for them, it may not be working long-term, and yet they've grooved bad habits. And so to me, the real rep, and getting back to our discussion about game management and everything and how many games, I would not say we need to play less than 82 games if coaches were more committed to playing younger guys more. Because that's the ultimate rep in games. It's what you do in games which informs the curriculum that makes your practice the next day. It's what you do in those games, which is what you should be scripting out for your practices the following day individually and collectively for your team. And, and then think about what people like me have been teaching players for 30 years now. We do in games that which we practice, and we're going to practice that which we want to do in games. So um, I heard uh, – you, you, have you been following Jabari Smith at all, the Auburn kid? Uh, it's funny. I had, I, I, had a, I had Brian Schroeder, a draft guy, on yesterday. I had to admit yeah. to him. I, I, I tried seen, to hear it. I just couldn't yeah. hear it, but I tried to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> I've, 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 watched, I've watched one and a half games of, of college total this year and ending the tournament. So I'm, I'm aware of him, but I don't know his game. I won't okay. Know I him. just started watching guys outside of – I watch my son's games. You know, I don't miss a minute of those. And so, but I, I saw Jabari actually was, was at Duke, Florida State played Duke, and I was hanging out with my son in the lobby of the hotel, and the Florida Auburn game was on. My, my, I was with my brother, whose son goes to Duke, and we all went to Florida. So we were watching that game. That's when I first saw him. I, I'm publishing an article, I think, tomorrow, where I'm, I write about the top four prospects plus uh, one guy that I don't know why he's not considered a good prospect because I think he's really good, and Kofi Coburn from Illinois. But, um, I, and I want to talk about that in a second, but uh, I, I, Jabari Smith has this great quote. It's amazing. He's 18 years old, and he kind of defines a good shot as the kind of shot you take more than once. And it's a really interesting way for a teenager. <laughs> That's if you're That's just fabulous. doing it, yeah, if you're just doing it one time, it's probably not a good shot. This is this shows that well, his his dad played at LSU, like you know, he he grew up playing the game. That's a that's an advanced level thinker for shooting. You if you watch Tim Duncan, all the shots look the same. If you watch Demar Derozan, all the shots look the same. I don't mean the form. I mean where he tries to get, how he gets his shot off. If you watch Scotty Barnes lately, he's just bullying you in the paint over and over, and it looks like they're contested hook shots, but they keep going in because he knows what he's doing. This is this is where you know, don't watch Jalen Green and think you're going to see that. When he, if he ever gets that, well, now, you know, hello, now he got himself a player. That's when Anthony Edwards is not there yet, but he's getting there. James Harden, Kevin Durant, these guys kind of always do the same things all the time. And I guarantee you that's what they're practicing. So you practice what you expect to do in a game, and in a game, stick to what you practice, which conversely is exactly the opposite of what you want to do defensively, which is try to make them do stuff they don't practice, which is exactly what – 
our mission one, when I, when I was a high school coach, our mission was let's try to make them do what they don't normally do. And of course, there's more specific stuff than that. And we want to force turnovers. We were, we denied everything and all that. We pressed everywhere. Uh, even my son's team, we played super fast, pressed, trapped, changed defenses all the time. But the idea is always the same thing. Don't let them get comfortable doing what they always do. Make them do something different. And ultimately, that includes the, the shot they take. Have it be by someone that isn't normally shooting it, preferably in a place they don't normally shoot from with a hand in their face. You do that, you're, gonna have to, you're not going to lose many games. Sure. No, that, may, that, 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 may, that makes a lot of sense. And really, you, I mean, you talk about, um, you know, we've, we've talked about two of the guys like this, but this is the thing that makes, like, a really special player is, like, they may take, a, like, if you get really specific about a shot, they may only take it once. But what you're saying about, like, Kevin, Kevin Durant, he can get to that, like, dribble right pull up from so many different spots on the court, but it's kind of the same shot from all those different kinds yeah, of it's the spots same shot. on the court. But, yeah. but, it, it, but so for a lesser player, it's like, all right, I'm going to take one dribble and get to the elbow and do that. But for a guy like a guy like Kyrie, a guy like um, you know, a guy like KD, um, uh, like Jokic, one of the, someone like that, yeah. it's they yeah. it's they they can they figure out how to do, they figure out how to map the court to do what is the same thing physically, right? But just from everywhere on the court and with a bunch of different things leading into it, like they've made exactly, that, that piece exactly of right. smaller. You'll love this. I, I've written this before, but if you've been reading me long enough, it means you, you can't have seen it all because I've been doing this now for 15 years. Uh, I read somewhere, this is going back a few uh, years, I mean, 10 years, maybe, maybe more. I read somewhere that someone charted Tim Duncan one year and on 175 consecutive possessions in the post, he went middle first. And I always use that because that's exactly what I teach everyone I've ever worked with. Uh, we're trying to go middle. All sorts of things can open up there. Obviously, if, if we're being overplayed in the post, we can drop step and score. That's fine. But, but we're, we're talking about we, we always try to prepare to score against actually good defenders, not terrible ones, you know. So let's assume they're not going to let us just drop step and lay it up or dunk or just spin and, and lay it up. So we have to create something. And, and if Tim Duncan had to go middle 135 consecutive times, and I promise you, it wasn't because the defense wanted him to go there, where he has options to throw the ball all over the place um, and use the backboard all the time if he wanted to. It's because he worked to get there. And then you counter if you need to counter. And if you don't need to counter, just you finish that way. And if they double it, you can make your decision. Uh, this, is, this is understanding how to use the court uh, to your best benefit. And, and just real quickly on KD, I was watching him play, oh, maybe, maybe just over the weekend. It might, might have been... Yeah, it might be over the weekend, and, uh, but pretty recently either way. And he's bringing them up the court, and he's got them on his right hand down the middle. And, I, and I've watched him play since his you know, freshman year at Texas. And I know if he gets the screen that he wants, he's going right to left crossover three. You could just see it when, you, yeah. when you've watched him. I've, I've been helping NBA players guard Kevin Durant since he got in the league. And so I know a little something about guarding him. I'm not well, saying not, not well. Him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're, you're gonna. You have to live with. I always say defense is playing blackjack. Your job is to force the the guy to hit on sixteen. If he draws a four or five, so be it. The problem is you can't force Durant into sixteen very much. This is what the great ones. They they're, they're great at getting it at hitting on sixteen and getting twenty one or twenty or nineteen and beating you, but you just really can't get him at sixteen too often. 
And so I don't remember who they were playing, but they, they clearly they didn't realize, oh, he wants a, he wants a right to left crossover three. And so the defender, the offensive player set the screen uh, on the, on the offensive player's right hip and Kevin Durant and the, and the defender stayed back for reasons. I have no idea why the big, and he went right, left crossover, used the screen bucket, you know, again, just, I was amazed at how excited Kevin Durant seemed to be to be able to get that shot. And I love the fact that this guy's been playing through Team U, you know, last year, Team USA this year, and how many years he's been playing, and he loves it. And that's what I was amazed at. But then I started thinking just about, yeah, what a, what a gift it is that you know you have, I mean, he's not a 50% shooter on that shot, but he's probably pretty close. You have to defend that. You have to defend that play. And that comes from hours and hours and hours over the course of a lifetime, each day and each week, at perfecting those kinds of shots, which is why you'll see it in the game, which is why it should be taking it away. Yeah, except except in that, like, because he's, you know, we just talked about, like, he, you know, I, anyone who's watched Kevin Durant at all has to be able to see this in the, my, their mind's eye. Like, he starts that play by, you know, a big high dribble in his right hand, try to get you to yeah. raise up. And if he yeah. if you lean to it to, to your left, he he does that hang crossover and raises yep. up. And if you don't, right. he takes a hard he dribble to his right. You retreat yeah, and he right. rises up over you and he's seven that's feet right. tall and there's nothing you can do about it. So no, like, you just, but you'd rather him do that for yeah. two than three, is all yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah. You're screwed either way, Kevin yeah. Durant. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the, be, the my best player ever at guarding Durant was Corey Brewer, only because of two things. Well, three things. One, Corey's six nine and crazy long and quick and never get tired, too, uh, he is he harasses you with, with your dribble. Because of that quickness and length, he, does, he makes you uncomfortable. He, he, now he's a coach. He doesn't play anymore, although I think he should be playing still. He makes you uncomfortable, which, which in a gym, when you're working out, you don't typically get. So, again, you're trying to make guys do stuff they don't typically do. So you want to get him herky-jerky. And then the third thing is he's great at denying you. Great. And, and you just have to hope, which is when, when he was at OPC, Russell Westbrook was only too happy to keep the ball if you denied Durant that first time and maybe the second time. And that's what you had to hope for. Because if they were held bad again by Durant, you know, already you've kind of lost, <laughs> you know? Yeah. He is, he is that special player. Uh, Tony Allen was the other guy who, because it'd be slightly different, but because he would get into Durant's body and not let it, like they wanted to run Oh, that. for sure. They wanted to run that guys. They, yeah, smaller guys work against those yeah. tall guys because it's like an elephant walking around with a bunch of mice, you know? They're just uncomfortable. They're always under underfoot. Yeah. So, but, um, I still, like, we still, like, you know, we, we've talked around it, but I still, like, you know, train, like, you know, you talk about game development. Like, how do you work on that? First of all, like, two, there's two questions. How do you, like, how do you evaluate where a player is in their decision-making? And it's not and yeah. like usually when we say decision making, we're talking about, you know, the macro decisions like, you know, shot, pass, drive, stuff like that. But really, like playing any sport is you're making, you know, 10 decisions about what to do every second. And the best yeah. players get eight of them right every, you know, or something like that. Right. But so how do you like that? That those micro decisions that, you know, we call yeah. that feel. Right. How do you yeah. evaluate that? And then how do you can you teach that? And if so, how can you? Yeah, well, that's such an amazing question. Um, I have a couple of different thoughts. One is uh, I, I, we call it like processing speed. So 
you know, the Kyle Lowry's of the world, Chauncey Billups. I, I used to call Chauncey Robo Point Guard. That they could, because Robocop was like a movie I remembered, and then he started playing. I'm like, he's just making a thousand decisions in the blink of an eye, like a computer, like a freaking robot. Um, and so the, I, I remember coaching a game. I'm sorry. I was watching a game of a player that I helped who was uh, uh, like a thick, thick, not very athletic kid, could really shoot in, a, in an age where we didn't have a lot of stretch fours. This was in the early 90s. And his team was up one late in the game, uh, and they were getting pressed, and they're about to turn it over. But he was the inbounder. He threw like a baseball pass near half court. His guys mucking around with the ball. They, they kind of screwed around with the ball and, and, and really didn't know what the hell to do. And this kid, I, I'm, I'm not kidding, Seth. He was standing under his own basket as his players are flailing against his press. But he's behind half court line. They can't throw it to him, right? He races. I don't know where he's racing because he's not looking at the ball. He's racing towards half court. And he gets to the referee that's there. I was in the bleachers in front of me. And he calls timeout. I had never, now that I was younger then, but I'd still never seen that before. Uh, there was no trail official. I don't know why. He went to the nearest one to him and called timeout and saved it. Was a, it was a tournament championship, saved the game. His coach didn't think of it. He thought of it. Uh, those, and he ended up going to South Carolina on scholarship. You know, pretty, pretty darn good play. Um, those quick sinkers are uh, everything. So uh, I think some of them, I, I've said this many times, if you ever watch Scotty Barnes play basketball, I, I, I'm convinced guys like Scotty and, and, and Lowry, and I can name a bunch of guys, I think that have been master chess players if you taught them the game. They just, there's, there's a, there, you call it feel, there's a processing feel that these guys have a spatial feel. Uh, they just, oh, Zach Randolph was incredibly gifted with his left hand hook, right? A little jump hook. He, you know, he didn't even shoot it mechanically right, but his sense of timing was so incredible. Zach Randolph shot the ball in his hook shot the way Steve Nash sometimes passed the ball. It just, you should have been able to block it, but he just had a feel for when to get it off before you could figure it out. And it wasn't conscious. It's unconscious. It's a feel for strategy. And when people forget about games like chess, and you probably played chess, it's a competition. Like you're trying to kill the other guy. You're, you're trying to, when you have a chance, you're trying to go for the throat. There's a strategic, there's a, a, a strategic aspect to the game that is not just science. There's an art to it as well. Our game is both science and art also. And so the way I think you have to teach it, which is what we do, and I know it, people are really going to great lengths, Seth. Maybe you've seen some of these things with lights and bells and all sorts of things. I, I think the smartest thing to do is, uh, this is just how I do it anyway, is I tell a lot of stories about the game. I create a scenario in the player's mind which is why playing time is so important because they need those reference points. So when they have a reference point and you show them on film what it looked like, and then you break down all 10 players on the court in their mind, and here's what you're reading every, every step, every second, millisecond. We, we, use, we use milliseconds typically as our, in our phraseology. Everything's about milliseconds because we're making quick decisions. Part of that's to get them thinking quickly naturally like they need to have an urgency to their thinking but just like in chess if you've ever seen the movie searching for bobby fisher yeah okay great book also uh based on obviously a true story about josh waitskin 
if you remember the, the penultimate scene where um, where uh, his instructor, who's not in the room with him, tells the chess player, don't move until you see it. Right? They keep playing that. Go watch it on YouTube if you forgot. Keep saying, don't move until you see it. Don't move until you see it. I, I do that all the time on our court. Until you see it, don't make the play. Where do most turnovers happen? They don't see it, and they still try to make the play because they think it'll work. Uh, the challenge, of course, is we have a 24-second shot clock, you know? Like, I don't think high school kids ever turn the ball over until the last seconds of the game because they don't have to shoot the ball unless there's a shot clock there. So don't do anything until you see it. And then your job as a teacher is to get them to see it faster and faster and faster. So you paint the scenario. You, you walk them through stuff. You show them on film. We have no excuse now, Seth, not to use clips. We, we, you know, when, I, when you and I were growing up, did you, when did you play high school? In the 90s? Early 90s? Early 90s, yeah. Yeah, but I thought, okay, so I'm just a liberal than you. I played early 80s. So um, we didn't have much film. <laughs> I, never, I saw myself, I think, once on videotape. Um, what, a, what a tool, what a weapon it is. I, I was once, you remember Luol Deng, I was teaching Luol how to post in transition because the, the Bulls sucked on offense. Scott Scott got fired. They were really flailing around offensively, no purpose. And he was in a contract year. And so what I did, and it was, it was harder then than it is now. Now it's so easy. I got him to watch a bunch of film on Kobe's early offense post-ups and seals. And we showed it, we showed it, we showed it, and we get to a game, and Luol would just never do it. And finally, one time, he told me the story. I watched it live, but he said he's running down the left wing, and the ball's on the right side, and no one's back on defense except for the guy guarding him, basically, at near half court. And he's thinking, oh, this, you know, he's thinking to himself, he told me, man, Kobe would have posted this. And then he's like, oh, I should do that. And so he ran to the post, he got the ball, and froze. And then I taught him a move that I call a double pivot, which is Dwayne Wade. Remember Dwayne would, like, he would, like, turn left shoulder um, like he was going to shoot the jumper fadeaway, and then he'd pivot again and get a layup? Yep. Jordan also did it, but Dwayne was amazing at it. So I taught him that. Uh, and another, once he started posting more, well, now, you, now, now that you have the ball, what are you going to do? So I taught him a double pivot, and um, I, that's what I call it. And he had, I remember it, he had Karan Butler. Funny, this, the stuff we remember as old people. He had Karan Butler on him on the left block as he faced the basket. And he, he, he looked like he was going baseline fadeaway. He shot fake. Butler went for it. And Luan just froze. He didn't do anything. <laughs> and, and he's like smiled. He knew I was going to say something after the game. It, it's a process. Now, then eventually he got it down. So you got to see it, and then you got to screw it up. We, we have a philosophy in my family. I wrote about this in my book called Embrace the Suckiness. It's how I taught my son how to hit, basically. If you're not going to ever be good at hitting in this state, where we have pitchers everywhere because they play year-round, until you first admit you suck at it. Let's just admit we suck, and who cares? What, what, what does it matter if you're, you're, you're 10 years old? Who cares if you suck? And then let's just get better. But let's be honest with ourselves. It's where we are because that's where we'll drive our work ethic from. And so that's what I would tell players all the time. Who cares if you suck? It's going to happen. Mistakes are always going to happen first, which is why, for example, the Mavericks are very scary because Luca is still making a lot of mistakes. He's, still, he's number two behind hardened turnovers, and he plays a different kind of game to some degree than James. I don't think that's always going to be the case, Seth. I think he's going to get better. And that's yeah, scary. He's always going to be a high turnover guy just because of how much he has the ball. But, yeah. Compared like, to everyone else, but he's yeah, still yeah. going to be better. He's still ascending on his game, which is scary for the rest of the league. And so 
So, they, so to answer your question, you've got to see it. You have to understand it. You can't make any decisions if you don't understand what's going on. So this is where I talk about game development. We have to get our guys to understand what's happening. And this is the issue that when we're scouting college players, whether you and I are writing about it, whatever, um, when I was coaching a lot of high school kids, when I was helping my son's teams, it, it to, to compare them to most of these NBA players who I really think in a different world, raised in a different family, or maybe in a different country where basketball wasn't a big deal, these guys would be physicists and chess players and anything that where quick thinking was required, um, they could do. They just process. I marvel at their ability to think quickly uh, on a court surround, filled with gigantically tall, powerful, quick, fast, long men. Most The average person go in there and they would turn the ball over all over the place all the time. And these guys do the, the, the passes they make. I, my, I've been watching this game critically for a long time. I'm still amazed at the passes our guys can throw in the league because of the defense being played. They just see it. It's slow motion for them, you know? And I think, I mean, the way you're describing it is, is sort of like, um, it, it, it's, it, Evan Mobley's going to win rookie of the year this year, uh, almost certainly. But I, like, think, he, I think he should be the favorite as of now. It's not over yet, but he's the leader yeah. for sure. Deservedly but, so. Yeah, absolutely deservedly so. But, like, um, People were for he had a rough start, but people were like out on Cade Cunningham a little bit early, and it's like he's not a he's not a player who is a a guy you scout via highlight. He's a player you see just you know you talked about like like Chauncey Billups being Robo point guard, yeah, and yeah. that's that's like there's a like very different style because like Chauncey's you know like I've, I've played I've played in pickup games against Chauncey, and even like having been retired for. Many yeah. a year, he still just is like one finger can kind of move you anywhere he wants to on right. the court because <laughs> he's so strong. Um, right, but uh, but just the, those the the ability to not get sped up and just like okay, that's yeah. open. I'm throwing the ball there. That's where the ball needs to go. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm I need to. Oh, this is this is where the the offense is gonna be attacking in two seconds. So I'll slide there. Just like the right. consistency of those things. Was so, so it, yeah. it makes you sound like the biggest basketball hipster, but because you know it's like you're you're it's like talking about tasting notes in like wine or something yeah. like that. But yeah. well, yeah, I love I love how you're doing. In fact, when I evaluate players like I'm doing right now for this article, I just got done writing it. Um, that's kind of how I do it. Is it's, it's tasting notes. It's he's got some D Wade in him. He's got some you know some of this guy in him and. That's because I've been watching it for a long time, so I have lots to compare things to. Uh, real quick on the rookie front, the reason why you probably don't know this, but I had Mobley rated number one. I did an article about it. I did Chad Ford's, my buddy Chad's podcast. I had Mobley one, Barnes two, Cunningham three as my top three. And the reason why I ranked them in that order is I felt like Barnes and Mobley, and, and again, I had an advantage. I watched every minute of Scotty Barnes' games. And I knew a lot of behind-the-scenes stuff because I was on the team. Uh, so it was unfair in that sense. I knew how competitive he was and how joyous of a teammate he was. And I knew, I knew stories, the fact that it's in my article tomorrow, if it doesn't get edited out, where the very first day of COVID summer 2020, when he, when he got to Florida State, the gym was closed. But they had a friend who, who had a home. He, he's actually a former player that lived there that has a, nothing, nothing fancy, but like a, a gym at where he lives. And, uh, and these guys are, you know, these guys are addicted to basketball. They go play. 
just basically pick up in the summer. But in the gym is Trent Forrest, who's now in his second year with the Utah Jazz. And was coming off, back that year, Florida State was, did by itself said they would, he was their favorite, they were his favorite to win the national championship. They finished the season ranked number four. Uh, they were an incredible team with Devin Vassell and Pat Williams. Pat Williams was sixth man and went number four in the draft, and he, and he didn't start for that team. That's how good they were. But their leader was Trent Forrest, point guard, leader, captain, Mr. Seminole. Everyone loved Trent Forrest. I didn't know him, but they loved him. And on this pickup game in June of 2020 amidst the pandemic, this, the legend goes that Scotty was picking up Trent full court and giving him problems. And when I knew those kinds of stories about him, I had to rate him just behind Mobley, who I thought, like Scotty, not only was competitive, and I didn't know the backstory so much on Evan, but what you said, I thought the game was already slow for them. And, and again, you can learn it. It's just, to me, hard, it's harder to learn that than it is to learn how to shoot the ball, in my opinion, or dribble the ball, to some, to some degree. To be Tyree Irving as a ball handler, you know, to be in one of these amazing shooters, yeah, obviously that's super hard. But to be proficient at it, at that size, whatever, isn't so hard compared to learning how to play. At Mobley and Barnes are everywhere, and they never seem to be in a rush except for a racing full court. Barnes, get, Barnes races full court in like five steps, and it's amazing to watch. Um, and Kate is getting there, and I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of Kate Cunningham, the Cantonist prospect also. Uh, it's harder for him as a primary ball handler, but it's why Barnes can play all five positions and does all the time. I don't know if you saw the game against the Nuggets where Nikola Jokic, this was a couple of days ago, had no points in the fourth quarter. And Barnes was not the only reason why, because they help a lot and they switch, they switch everything. But he guarded the hell out of Jokic. He denied him mostly, which is what I would tell about Corey, super smart. Uh, that just isn't typical of a six, seven point guard in high school and, and college doing that at the, at the NBA level against the world's best player. Uh, there's something clicking. There's a mind that's racing there, and everything's just going in slow motion. And that's, that's where these, most of these players in the NBA have just faster processing speed. That's what I think anyway. Well, that's, I mean, that's the thing that separates, you know, there's you, how many of these, you know, I don't know. The, the, the guy I always use as an example of this is, 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 you know, there's two players I use as an example of this are like, you know, Casey Akpala or Cam Reddish or guys who, you know, the prototypical like size build whatever for this long athletic yeah. Yeah. yeah but like they don't like you just you you they just don't they don't make the plays at the same frequency like whether it's it's just they don't see the seam quite as early they don't see the the pass quite as early they don't understand that this is a good shot or that that's the right pass to throw and it's like like the like it it sounds reductive but it's like can you play basketball and like obviously they can play basketball, but like you know we're we're talking about like you know elite level, like the, how how like you know six standard deviations above normal you have to be to be like a, a good NBA player at that is like so that's, like that's on a that great curve, way to put it. Yeah, that's on, a, on, the, on that curve, that. It, it, yeah. it it's not enough. I love how you put that six standard deviations. I love that the player that I use just so you know because I'm much older than most people listening is Gerald Green. And before him, James White. Remember James White? Yeah, Flight, yeah. He, he, yeah, Flight White. Went to Florida, then he transferred to Cincinnati. And I remember after his first year at Florida, you know, he was like the world's best athlete coming out of high school. I, I don't know if he, you want to he talk could about dunk, that. He could dunk easily 
two-handed from the free throw line. Yeah, so this and he had absolutely zero, and I mean this, in the half court of that year, I think he had zero dunks because of what you just said. He didn't see the scenes. It wasn't even about lack of skill. You don't, you don't have to dribble the ball to get dunks in, in college. You just got to cut the right time and, and, uh, or just make a simple, one simple catch and go. He didn't see it. And that's why I never thought he'd make it in the NBA. And I think he did make the league a little bit, but never much. And Gerald Green, same thing. Finally, late in his career, this super athletic guy, Gerald Green, because he could shoot the ball and move really well, you know, found a little bit of time in the NBA for a couple of years, but Anyway, they drafted him expecting much, much more. But you've got to see it. And it's just and it's not easy to do. And so you look at you look at a guy like Desmond Bain. So he doesn't look like he'd be a basketball player. He looks like an NFL football player. And and he's short armed that I can see. I've never checked his measurements, but he looks short armed to me. But he's an amazing shooter. That's not enough. Uh, to be not a great athlete and not long-armed and live the way he's living with the Grizzlies, a huge player for them, there's a processing thing going on there that six standard deviations above the norm. And uh, like I said, in a different world, if we got rid of basketball forever, um, these guys could be – I mean, I, the example I use a lot to, when I talk to Henry about it is they'd be unbelievable CIA analysts because they're in real time, not data analysts, with their eyes visual – like, uh, you know, when you're studying crime scenes uh, on, on video and you're picking things out, pattern recognition, these guys are just, women too, on the, on the women's side, there's just, there's something going on in their brains. You can train it, you can develop it to some degree, but I, I also think some of it's an A2. No, that's a, that, that's a, I was actually just going to say pattern recognition. I, um, yeah, pattern recognition. I was reading a couple months ago, I was reading, uh, if, if, if uh, have you read uh, Doug Lemoff's book, uh, uh, teacher's guide to coaching um, i don't remember if and i he, read that and, or not and he and he, or i might have it backwards it might be the, the, the coach's guide to teaching it's what it's, <laughs> it's one or the other but but he yeah. was he was talking about like there's some studies of like elite level soccer players and in terms of of they do like vision tracking what they look at and the best of the best are actually looking at fewer things which i yeah. thought was fascinating like they they, yeah. they distilled it down so much that it's not that they're seeing more; it's that they're they've they've they're seeing less. They've they've almost like grayed out the the, the aspects of a play that don't matter. And this is I, I was when I was thinking about what we're going to talk about. I was hoping we would get to this. You know, you were talking about like sometimes uh, players you know turn the ball over because they don't see it. Sometimes yeah. they see too much. Like this is this is in like st- like statistical evaluation of draft prospects. Like turnovers are interesting because yeah. they could yeah. be bad. They could be good. It could show right. a lack of skill, lack of awareness, or it could show the ability to try stuff and yeah. picking those Which out. I love. Is, and, and so it's like, so even you think about like some of the best players in the league have some of the most head scratching turnovers. And I, and my theory is that it's, they've, they've grayed out these things that usually don't matter. So like the one time in a hundred where this guy being three steps left of where he normally is that you normally just ignore. Um, yeah. The one that one time it matters, the ball like hits the defender in the face, and it's like, what were we even looking at? Turnover, but because the ninety-eight nine other times he doesn't matter, so you don't care about him. And and I yeah. think that's that's yeah. a little bit what's going on. Oh, I said fascinating stuff. Um, I don't know how much you play poker. I, I don't typically play. I <laughs> I raise the family and I I, 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 I I played professionally for 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 several years. So. I'm not surprised. So 
So tell me, so Seth, I'm asking you then, and then don't forget, I need, I need to talk about, I need to talk to you about big men. If you want to do, we can do it off air, but I need to talk to you about it. But so I, I didn't play a lot of poker. I played some, and I, I mean, I was decent at it, whatever. I have a brother that made it to the World Series of Poker. He, he's a doctor who just played, won a tournament and got an entry. It didn't last very long. But um, I have another brother who played it more frequently. And um, I, I don't think they, the really great poker players don't like playing with the absolute half. That doesn't mean they don't like taking their money. But they're so unpredictable that I think it can cause a problem. And I love what you said about uh, these amazing players. I, I tell players all the time, I think Chris Paul makes some of the absolutely most imbecilic turnovers imaginable. And this is the point, God. He's smarter and faster than everybody. His mind, I mean. And yet, I've seen him make some just, forget about missing free throws late, whatever. That, that to me is, is much more of a random thing. Some of the mistakes he's made as a thinker are so shocking. But I wonder if what you're saying is exactly right. There's just, there's like a cog in the code, you know? There's, a, there's something in the coding that they just didn't register because it's so incredibly rare that they just kind of missed it. Because I think your point is exactly right. People have asked me, how can I keep track of four games at the same time? Well, number one, I have good practice. I've done it a lot over the years. But number two is I tend to just, I just know what to look at. I'm just an old guy that's done this a long time. That doesn't mean uh, I'll see, like I didn't know Kyrie scored 40-plus points at half. I knew he was killing it. I knew he was running faster than everyone, that's for sure. Um, I've had other games on, too. So I just think, yeah, I think that this goes to, this goes to Durant's thing. These guys that have played for so long, it's one reason why they want to keep playing. Michael Jordan said this in his documentary where when he, when he didn't quite have the athleticism he once had, the energy, that's when his brain kind of took over. And wouldn't it be fun to be able to, you know, wouldn't you love playing poker all the time if you pretty much knew you're always going to win? Why wouldn't you want to do that? These guys keep the game suck. at such an advanced level. It's, it's what? It <laughs> that would suck, right. actually. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, it would be great, but it would be, it would be, it would be like, yeah. the, like, the, like the, the mental it's challenge of it would be, just yeah. be like, yeah. you know, I, like, yeah. you know, the, like, it's, you know, this is far afield, but like the most important, like it, it sort of is dichotomous because the most important skill to be a professional poker player, it's called game selection. It's basically who right. are the worst exactly. people I can play against, but to get yeah. better at poker, the best thing you can do is playing play against good players. So it's sort of right. like, am I, am I trying to get better? or Am I trying to make money? And like, you can get right. better at beating bad players, but to actually like, all right, I'm killing this level, but I have to get better to, to, to move up to the next level. Which means right. that, like, as to kind of, you know, to quote you, you have to embrace the suck a little bit. And, yep. yep. And, yeah. Yep. Um, this is, very this li- is why we should be using the G League better, by the way. If, every, if everyone would send down their young players who are getting DNPs, the G League, would, the G League already is super talented. It would be even more talented. And instead of beating up on bad players, and, and I don't mean this in a bad way, they just don't know how to play yet. They're talented. They're athletic. And they're close to whatever. And long and tall and strong, but if they, if they played against other guys on NBA rosters that weren't getting playing much, much playing time for the varsity, the G League talent would be better, and we'd help our young guys even more. The 10th through 17th league. The 10th through 17th yeah. man league. Yeah. Right. Our league would be so good if they took advantage of the G League better. It really would. So I'm, I'm going to demand that we do this again in another couple of weeks because I think we have a ton Great. more to talk about. Um, Great. Very last question, and then I then I, I yeah. got to get going. Is okay. I don't even have time to ask this question, but we're here, so whatever. 
Um, so you were you were talking about like the mental reps of you of you doing storytelling, and like I'm going to ask you to criticize coaches, and I know coaches don't like to criticize other coaches, but I think that coaches do not get enough reps at late game situations. So they don't, they like, you know, there's the baseball example. All right. Uh, you know, two down first and third, uh, we're down three runs in the bottom of the seventh. Everyone's available. All our bullpen. They've used their, 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 you know, uh, one, one batter lefty reliever. Um, what you know, in this situation, what do you do and, and why? And like, ba- like baseball, like they, there's this, the culture of like going through all those scenarios right. and like gaming right. and stuff like that. I don't, my impression is that basketball coaches don't do that as much for, so, okay, 30 seconds left. We're down four. We're inbounding. We have both timeouts left and a foul to give. Do we need to shoot a three here? Okay. And, and they don't so, know, they, like, they don't, like, they don't get enough, like, of, of the, the, because you can't parse those factors quickly enough when they occur in a game. And so I just wonder if coaches do enough mental reps to be prepared to have already made that decision before the game starts. It really depends on your pedigree. Uh, growing up for me, um, camps I went to, we would do things called situation tournaments. So we would be like, best of five. Skins, you know, so first game, game one, skins up two, shirts ball, half court. Game two, skins down three, uh, eight seconds left, ball underneath the, the opponent's basket. And it would be best of five. And then if you won that one, you'd go on to the next one with five other situations. In fact, I saw Vince Carter win one of these with the most amazing lob finish of all time. And he went a lot of dunk it at a five-star camp and he, and he made it at a campus championship. Um, where, uh, where, was, this, where was five-star when you were, when you were there? Oh, I did two different Virginia ones and the Pittsburgh one. Okay. I didn't do Honesdale. Yeah. Okay. This one, no, this I, was I, in Pittsburgh. I, I know I asked because my, the, the, uh, actually my, my wife used to work at the, uh, at the camp that, that, that runs out of out of the Honesdale facility. So she's yeah. Like, I never did Honesdale. Oh, it's funny. Yeah. She's I never got, did she, she, uh, Howard Garfinkel, not her favorite person, but that's a whole other. Yeah, thing. he should. I mean, he wasn't a great human being. He <laughs> he he ran in a good business, whatever. But and I knew Howard extraordinarily well. In fact, they asked me to help them uh, start their overseas programs, which I did. But yeah, I didn't deal with Garf as much on that. I dealt with Will Klein. It was great, and his son Lee and I are great friends now. Um, Will is the co-founder. So the answer to your question though is some people who grow up coaching. My goal is to coach 100 games a year when I started when I was 22. And I was dating this super hot girl that I should have spent a lot more time with. But instead, I coached and coached and coached. And I tried to do 100 games a year. Luckily, she still married me almost 32 years ago. That, that is a joke that she did. But um, by 10 years in, I coached well over 1,000 games. And so I had tons of reps. I don't think we get that much now. Um, but here's the other thing. Even if you do, even if you do game plan that stuff, more often than not, I think these coaches tend to run an action, but the star player stops it and just does his own thing, and you can't second-guess them and keep your job. And so where, where I think we're at our best is when the star player trusts the coach to run a great action that can be called off if necessary, that the opposing team does something and now you've got to scramble. Like when I was coaching, I, if I was coaching against a very good X and O's guy in a late game situation, he called timeout. We were not going to run the defense we had just been running. That's for sure. Even if it wasn't our best defense, we were going to change it up. And if you were really good X and O's and I wasn't sure your team was good at figuring stuff out, but they could just run the pattern. We trapped. We made you make a basketball play. We might have lost, but you were not going to run what he just diagrammed that he's a genius at it. 
and these guys are great executors. Whereas if you're a bad execution team, we're going to play solid, our solid man or whatever. So, but I, again, I coached a thousand games by the time I was 32 years old. Um, I don't think, I don't think we have a lot of coaches who feel confident that if they've got James Harden on their team, they probably see that James Harden played hero ball. And that's unfortunate because I think, I think part of the beauty of the game is, is those late game executions, you know? Sure. So we, we, I, I, this is not surprising. We could go on for another hour, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I don't have time for that right now, but, um, I'm going to call you off air. Right. I, get, I get you paying on big man. I'm going to call you off air next couple of days. Right. Okay. Well, th- thank you so much for, for coming on coach. And we really, we have to do this again because as always, when we talk, uh, I feel like I learn a ton and it's just a good time. It's great. I appreciate it. Seth, anytime, buddy. Just ask. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, folks. I am back tomorrow evening with uh, with the guru of going from from a from a player development guru to the to the world leading like the NBA asks him when they have questions uh, about the uh, NBA's collective bargaining agreement and salary cap. Larry Kuhn is joining me tomorrow, and uh, we're gonna talk about something completely different then. So uh, join me tomorrow, and thanks for uh, thanks for listening. Take care. <laughs>